Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, and we will be speaking about how big is your ego? Famous expression, you can't live with it, you can't live without it, is very apt to this subject matter called the ego. What would life be without an ego? There'd be no sense of self. You could be taken advantage of, used, lack of self-confidence, lack of self-preservation. On the other hand, with an ego, we see ego out of control, an ego that's too large, can become arrogant, step on others, hurt others, hurt ourselves, and all the consequences that come out of that. So you need it, you can't live with it, you can't live without it. The question is, can we find a balance? There was once one of the, uh, I believe it was a Star Trek episode, where um, some science fiction scenario that caused <clears throat> the captain's personality to split into two. A type of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where um, the same person, but two identities. One was the kind, intelligent one, and the other one was the, the, fo- the survivor. And when they weren't mixed together, they were separate. It was interesting. The survivor one became a very selfish, egoistic, and arrogant, but also very fearful, without direction. The good side that was focused on kindness and empathy and compassion was lacking drive. And so if there, like in the story with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Stevenson's classic, that they need each other. When you separate them and you don't have a combination of a certain sense of self, you can be very kind, but you could also be um, indecisive. You can become very timid. On the other hand, if you don't have that sense of self, you only have the good, another way around. If you only have the ego without the compassionate side, we know where that can lead. So that's the first question is, how do you find such balance between the two? And it really affects everything in life because we are not an island onto ourselves. We interact with others all the time. And there's a give and take in every good relationship. There's the love, there's the giving, there's the compassion, but there's also the self. It was what you receive. You're you being nurtured as while as also nurturing others. And how do we find balance? You very often find in relationships and a deep imbalance where one person is much more of the giver, the other one much more the passive recipient. One is more dominant, one is more passive. Or other forms of imbalances that ultimately will give because every one of us has to be able to both be an entity of self plus that the self does not consume you to the point of destruction. In the words of the great sage Hillel, he said, if I am not for myself, what will I be? And if I am only for myself, what am, who, what am I? I should correct. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And if I'm only for myself, what am I? Which one is it? The answer is both. You need a self, but you need to realize the self is dependent and requires to be complemented by others.
So we've talked about this topic many times in the context of the humility is the key ingredient to find that balance. Because humility does not mean you lose yourself. Humility means you harness yourself and you can temper it and give a direction to be used toward higher purpose. We'll talk about that some more soon. But here comes the bigger question. How big, how, how, what is the healthy measure of what means an ego? How big should an ego be? And maybe the hardest question to answer is the personal one. How big is your ego? Can you gauge and measure it when ego by definition is a bias, is a type of blind spot, a subjectivity that doesn't really let you know how big it is and how healthy it is and so on. So all this needs to be included into the equation in self-introspection when we look at ourselves is to understand who we are, what, what role do we, does, does our ego play, does your ego play, what is its assets, what are its liabilities, how do you measure it properly, how do you harness it, and as we'll see, it's not just a force to be controlled, it actually could be harnessed and transformed into a tremendous force of good and great change that one can achieve in this world and this lifetime. So this is the overall overview of the topic. And as usual, it's not a topic that something is completely from outer space. Everybody's quite familiar with the word ego is. However, as we know, ego is used in so many different ways. There's egocentric, used in very negative ways, bordering on narcissism, egoist, um, and so on, big ego. But ego, on the other hand, is also a sense of self, as I said. If we didn't have one, we would completely be like doormats. We wouldn't have a sense of self. We'd also not be healthy. So however you fill in the blanks in your own life, you'll see it plays a role in every area. Let's start with relationships, as I mentioned. An ego that does not leave room for another is obviously going to undermine, if not worse, any relationship. On the other hand, the ego that becomes so egoless that you lose yourself in, the, in love to another could also backfire because it creates resentment and it creates a situation where ultimately you are missing from the equation. Egos play a role in work and co-workers, plays a role in family units, it plays a role in politics. Wherever you go, ego plays a role. And ego throughout history often created unbelievable great things, drive and ambitions, but also created great destructions. Entire wars were fought because someone's ego was slighted. Or the ambitions of an ego to prevail and win and have it his or her way. So I want to begin where I left with the last question, which is the subjectivity that we have point I always often make. You know, you ask someone, do you have any blind spots? As one person once told me, which I thought he was being humorous, but he was actually serious, he says, yes, I do, but I know what they are. That's not a blind spot. A blind spot means you don't know where it is, you don't know how big it is, and so on. So how does one get beyond subjectivity, which really is the first question in any given situation? Even though it's true there's some situations where we're not biased, it may not be something that we benefit or family member benefits or we have some gain, but still subjectivity taints all of us. Subjectivity in the broadest sense of the word includes subjectivity based on our 
natural inherent biases and prejudices, based on our parental and family influences, and based on attitudes of society, norms, so to speak, standards. So we have biases. Wherever you look, we have biases. So how does an intelligent person address that? Because as long as bias is a factor in any given decision, you could say, one second, maybe I made a wrong decision based on some prejudice. So the answer is an interesting one, but a simple one as well, and a profound one as well, and that is in the, that the awareness of our problem is half its cure. The mere fact that you have a blind spot and you're aware of it causes you to be a little humbler and need advice what to do in that particular situation. That's where you go to another opinion. You get an objective opinion, a mentor, a friend, an advisor, case by case. But that means awareness. What is the worst scenario? In the words of the Baal Shem Tov, aster, aster, darkness that conceals that is dark. You don't even think you have a blind spot. So I don't even need help. So you can live your whole life making mistakes and convinced that you're doing everything objectively when it's really being driven by subjective interests. So awareness, don't ever underestimate the power of awareness. Awareness means, oh, I know. I know that I have a certain, let's say, weakness in my leg, God forbid. So I have to do something to compensate. But you convince yourself you don't. Firstly, you could hurt yourself more. Secondly, you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve. Now, many people find it hard to be vulnerable, find it hard to acknowledge their pride, their egos, whatever it may be, that doesn't let them acknowledge that they may be weak in a certain area. It could be because they grew up in homes where they always had to perform and were, never va- and were not validated unless they delivered, so they were very, very self-conscious. Or you grew up in an environment where you're constantly criticized and always have to defend yourself. You always feel that people are going to blame you. So you have this knee-jerk reaction. These are all forces, subjective forces, that shape how we react, how we interact, how we blame and don't blame people, and so on. Obviously, the more a person is confident within themselves, the more they can coexist, the more they can acknowledge mistakes, take blame, take, be accountable. But the less they have of that inner self-confidence, which is the interesting irony, that the more self you have, the more you're ready to acknowledge that the self may have made a mistake. The less self you have, the more you need to make a bravado, put on a show that myself is completely intact. I, I didn't make a mistake. It was someone else's fault. Pointing fingers, blaming, etc., etc. Finding excuses. So the key thing to remember to begin with, and every time you look at yourself in a mirror, you're not going to see certain blemishes. I don't mean necessarily physically. Because that's how it is when a person is an expression that says love covers everything. When you love someone, you give them the benefit of the doubt, and it conceals, it even minimizes any problem. Now, that can be a beautiful thing, too. You love someone, you don't sit and so and meticulous and criticizing every stupid detail because you're able to look at the bigger picture. You love the person, so you give them the slack. You give your flexibility. That's what love is about. Where does it become a problem when you don't see an issue, when you should be looking at an issue, and due to your own comfort zone, you don't want to look at it because it makes you uncomfortable. This, of course, has to also be determined case by case. When do we forgive? When do we overlook? And when do we really focus on it? Especially when it comes to the self. Because sometimes dwelling on your own, on your own uh, shortcomings can also be demoralizing and not bring you anywhere. That's why you have to always remember that after rule number one that I just said, that 
identifying something, clarity is beginning of the healing. And the issue number two is whether you get demoralized or you get motivated. And when you see a blemish, when you see a flaw, when you see a subjectivity, a blind spot, and recognize there's something that's missing, if it demoralizes you, then you know it's not coming from a good place, then it's just beating yourself up or beating someone else up. But if it motivates you, and the same thing when you inspire someone else through constructive criticism, and it motivates them, not demoralizes them, you know you're going in the right direction. That's the litmus test, what its result is. If its result is more demoralization, then you know that what you're doing, the critique, and looking at that blind spot and subjectivity is just either beating yourself up or the need to be critical or that makes you feel more comfortable. For Some people feel more intact when other people are criticized, maybe because that exposes that. They, 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 and not only am I not perfect, they're also not perfect, however you explain it. So that's the thing is to, to be able to recognize what it's leading to. So the discussion here about ego is not meant to just, oh, you have a big ego, okay, you're a terrible person, or you got to do something to, uh, to lower the, the volume, so to speak. No, the key thing is to remember that we're looking to be motivated to grow. And when your ego gets in the way, you're not going to grow, you're not going to fulfill your calling. You won't actualize yourself. So ego is not just a contradiction to others. Like, you know, you have a big ego, so there's no room for someone else because you need to run the show or you need to dominate. Your opinion is the, one, the only one that matters. For yourself, because it means you're not letting things come into your life that will help you grow because of your own ego, your own insecurity, which is maybe concealed by your big ego. It's like you hide your insecurity with, uh, with your arrogance, with, with ego. So really it's doing a disservice to yourself, not just to others. So those are the two opening introductions in the process of how we look at ourselves and how we grow through. Number one is awareness of an issue. Awareness and the willingness then to go ahead and try to find someone that can see it clearer because they may not be involved. They don't have any biases or prejudices in this regard. And they don't see it through your eyes. It's like a fresh set of eyes, a fresh opinion. And the second thing is that to look that you're always looking for motivational growth Motivation to grow, not demoralization that paralyzes you and traps you and doesn't let you move. Then you know it's not coming from a healthy place. So let's now apply this to, once you know the method, to ourselves. So if you have a mentor, and you're blessed to have a good mentor, someone you trust, someone that's wise, someone that's not judgmental, and you would say to them, you know, I need, to, I need you to help me here. Need to know how much ego plays in my life. How much does ego play a role in my life in affecting my decisions? Now, you may be surprised that a mentor may not have brought it up to you, but since you bring it up, they may have something to say about it. You know, I made a decision to proceed with a project. Was that a good decision? Did my ego get in the way? Did it help? And so on. So you can apply the two points I made to yourself by actually asking that mentor or asking that friend or asking that trusted individual that you can speak to. It could be a colleague, it could be a teacher, it could be a rabbi, it can be anyone that you feel that you can speak to. The second thing is, as I said, the goal of this is, is action, is motivation. You're looking to grow, you're not looking to be demoralized. 
you know, I could speak to you as a writer or speaker. Sometimes I write something or speak and I feel I didn't do justice to it. Or I felt... So I always ask myself, you know, sometimes you get compliments and you still don't feel that you really did the best job. So you ask yourself, so it always feels bad, obviously, after a talk or writing something. You put so much energy invested in it and it didn't fulfill what you wanted it to do. So the question is, what happens then? And then someone comes over to you and says, I'd like to give you a constructive critique. So we all initially knee-jerk, sometimes don't like critique, who likes critique. But there's a concept of loving critique, because you know why? Not because you like the critique, because the critique helps point out things that you could do better, and next time we'll do better. And in a certain way, there's a relief to it. Not initially, we always have the compliment, you want to feel good a bit. The relief is, because then gives you hope you can do something about it. The worst part is you think, okay, I didn't do it that well. Maybe I'm stuck there. Maybe I'll always not do it that well. So the constructive critique becomes a catalyst, becomes a springboard that actually helps us grow because it helps us look beyond and say, you know what? Next time I do this, I'm going to correct it this way. I'll learn. I mean, this is ABCs of every business, of every entity that you mark down things that didn't go right and you improve it for the future to make it work better. And it's, and that's it's actually part of the process of real growth because then you can come and say five years later, ten years later, you know what? This was tweaked and improved to the point that to now it's a far better product, it's a far better article, it's a far better book, it's a far better presentation. So those are the two elements necessary, and I just wanted to give an example how they play themselves out in our personal lives. So now, once you have that armed with those two tools, you can then ask yourself the question about the bigness of the ego, of your ego. How big is it? And how, and how healthy is it? And what role it's playing in your life? So we're going to address that now, and then we're going to go, on the next point will be, the end, of, the end of the discussion will be, how does one transform the negatives of, an, of a big ego into a tremendously powerful force? But let's first address this question. So now if you're honest enough and you're ready to engage in a conversation, then you can ask the question. You know, how do you see me interacting with others? How much is ego a factor? How is it in many ways affecting others? Does it get in the way? Do people feel like they don't want to come close to me because my ego is fragile or they feel I'm too dominating? These are important questions to ask. Because if you're, let's say, managing people and in a leadership position, you definitely want to know that. That doesn't mean that every critique you have to necessarily follow because some people critique and their critique is not always that valid. But we're talking obviously someone that is, has your interest in mind. So they will say, yes, you know what? You can be very tough. You're very demanding, demanding of yourself, demanding of others, and you have to give it a little more slack, a little more leeway. We say, for example, if you're familiar with my book, the spiritual guide to counting the Omer. So you have there the attribute called Netzach, which is ambition, drive, determination. And you have its counterforce is Hoid, which is yielding, flexibility, humility. And both are necessary, like the, like the gas and the brakes. The sheer, raw, naked determination can end up hurting a lot of people. Even though you may accomplish big things, but ambition has that type of forward surge and you can trample on everything in your, in your way, in your path. Humility, flexibility is not weakness. It's recognizing that there's something more going on. It's not just about your determination. So it's a balance, just like gvura, 
discipline is a balance to chesed, to love, flexibility or um, acknowledgement, and humility is a balance to the determination and drive and the ambitious ambition and victory. So it's critical to understand that because then you realize that, okay, so how big is my determination? How big does my ego drive me? What does it do to others? How does it impact? Now, there could be great value because a leader has confidence and that confidence rubs off. So the confidence and ego are not necessarily synonymous, but they have a certain overlap, a certain sense of self. So we have the concept in Hebrew, the concept, two words are used when you talk about, um, that seem to be synonymous, but they're not. In Hebrew, there's a word for humility, a humble person, it's called an onov, humble person. Then there's an expression, a shuffle. Shuffle means a lowly person. The question is, what's the difference? The difference is what I said earlier, and elaborating a bit more. A humble person is someone who's very aware of their strengths. They're not delusional, and they don't minimize, they know their strengths. They know they're born with strengths or they earned it. And they know fully cognizant of it. And fully cognizant that others may not have that, those qualities. But the unhumble the humble person says, these strengths are not mine. I'm not a self-made person. I was blessed with them. Even if I put effort in, I was blessed that my effort should yield fruit. So you say to yourself, these strengths I have were given to me from a higher place. And if someone else was given those strengths, they may be, have been more accomplished than I am. That's the humble person. The lowly person, the shuffle, says, I'm worthless. I'm damaged goods. I'm worthless. I'm nothing to get to add, to contribute. What does that lead to? Demoralization. The first one is a healthy humility. And a very successful people can have it. Moses was the ultimate, it says. He was the humblest man that ever walked on earth. And what word is used? Anav. Shuffle even though sometimes it's used in a positive context too, in the general terms, but when you break it down and separate, distinguish it from the humble one, is a lowly, a person with no self-esteem, a doormat, a person who can be used, who's a shmata, as they say, someone that is not, that doesn't feel valuable. That's very different. The, the, the humble one knows very much their value, but they don't say it's me. So that's why it's so vital to understand well, your ego, what, what version of it is it? Is it the humble ego or is it the, or is it the low self-esteem ego? I know it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not because ego can be a, um, as I mentioned a number of times here, that you can, ego can be in the, in, the, in the shape of arrogance. Ego could also be in the shape of self-deprecation, where your point is where you completely like, annihilate yourself and say, no, and someone says to me, who are you to say that you're nobody? You say, I know that I'm worthless. If you really knew what I'm like, you'd know that. That's another form of arrogance. So the key thing to remember is that humility is not a contradiction to ego. You can have a good, healthy ego, but you don't say it's me. I'm not self-made. I am a servant of a higher cause. And I have strengths, and I'll fight for my strengths, but it's not about me. So there you can have a healthy ego, a healthy sense of self, and yet coexist and work with others without being compromised. Interesting, right. So now, once you go into that direction, then it's interesting, what you have to ask yourself, the question is, so how does your ego play itself out? And this already gets into more sensitive matters, particularly the issues of, <clears throat> of being secure or insecure in your life. You know, insecure people, 
will mask their insecurity all different ways. So when you see someone, a blustering person, with a blustering ego, an arrogant, that doesn't mean necessarily they're very strong. It could very well be they're masking their own inner fears and insecurities with being so tough. It's very possible. A truly confident person coming from a healthy place does not have to go ahead and demonstrate it to make announcements. There's a certain quiet confidence that they walk around with, a quiet dignity. At times, it could, it would, sometimes we're surprised when you see a person like that stand up for themselves because you don't always see it. It's usually very quiet. But when the come time comes, they may stand up and, and say something that says, wow, oh, the person you know, has a position. So the fact that people make noise and the sizzle is sometimes stronger, is, is more powerful than the stake, is we live in a superficial world where we often can be deceived or deceive others in thinking that a lot of noise means there must be a lot of power. Not necessarily. Because what we're describing here, what I'm describing here, is that ego is, has many shapes and forms. The healthiest form of an ego is the simple sense of self. When a child from the youngest age is nurtured by its mother and father and validated and, and its sense of self is reinforced, that child builds a healthy sense of, sense of self-confidence. What does that mean? That when they have a position that's thought through, they will say, I feel this way. They won't back off just because somebody doesn't like it. That doesn't mean to the extreme. They'll always listen to others, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But a person like that is, has a certain inner sense of security. Secure with myself. I'm comfortable in my own skin. My instincts, I trust my instincts. You'll see people, you'll see children who were undermined and in many ways violated and abused and hurt and not allowed to voice their voice, criticized for everything they said. You'll see they, they, their attitude is they shrink away because they were always told you don't, you're wrong or you're a fool, you're an idiot and you begin to believe it. Now a lot of resentment is built up and sometimes a person like that will lash out in anger because they've been knocked so many times. But it's a natural thing that they're going to develop a very unhealthy ego. An ego that is there more to fight for their turf. Not an ego based on a healthy sense of self. An ego that will not be tolerant of others. An ego that becomes destructive. So understanding which way your ego is going, whether it's driven by the reinforcement and validation of your spirit and your being and your psyche, or one driven in order to compensate for the lack of confidence and so on, is very different egos. Now, everybody has the first one, the healthy one, but it can go undercover. As I said, it can be undermined. It can be criticized. It can, you, can, you cease to rely on it. You start second-guessing yourself. Very difficult to make decisions. Very difficult to make, build build. Build relationships. Commitments come differently. Trust comes differently. It affects everything. The healthy ego, which is a sense of self, is builds the confidence that you don't need arrogance and you don't need to make, to make declarations to establish yourself. Because you are confident in who you are. So from that you see, from this point you, you see that healthy ego and humility are not a contradiction at all. Because this person who has that inner confidence doesn't have to be a whole brag, or doesn't have to brag 
and, and show off and have to establish their presence. And a person like that, paradoxically, that ego is very easy for it to coexist with others because it's confident. I know what I'm good at. And I more than forgive and I more than cherish what you're good at. Someone who does not have that and it's just their blustering and their noise and all the, the, the inflated uh, uh, arrogance that they have is obviously not going to tolerate others. So there you have another litmus test, tolerance of others. Does your ego tolerate other people? Can you celebrate the celebration of another or you feel like it belongs to you and you feel jealous and petty? So the healthy ego has no problem because I know what I'm good at and then you're good at what you're good at and we complement each other. Excellent. I don't need to take away anything from you. You don't need to take anything away from me. So with that, we see that different egos have different forms and shapes and you have to identify how it works in your life. Now, of course, it gets more complicated because you can say, one second, it's not so black and white. There are times I feel I have a healthier ego, sometimes I feel I don't have one. Sometimes in the same scenario, you can feel a combination that I feel a certain confidence, but I also feel a certain uh, gloating or a certain pride, vanity even. So fine. So if you can dissect it, like I said earlier, you can step back and look at yourself, especially with an objective party, then you can determine, say, you know what? There's some beauty here, a healthy form of confidence. I don't have to drop that. But there's some things I have to temper. Maybe I shouldn't be so proud or maybe I shouldn't be so, so uh, bragging about it. Sometimes, you know, celebrate more quietly. So that's something each of us can do as we understand ourselves, we learn to balance. And as I said, it will affect every area of your life. Even the mere fact that you're introspective is already going to affect, let alone the ideas themselves. So with that, let me move now to that point I said earlier about harnessing. Harnessing. So here's the key thing. The ego is ego. That's self. But remember I introduced the concept of humility, or a word I use often in these classes, bittle. Bittle is a secret ingredient for all success. What does it do? It does not say don't have an ego. It does not say don't have a sense of self. Don't have confidence in yourself. It says... Have all the above, but you're not serving yourself. You're serving a cause higher than yourself. That is the key. Because then, your ego is not about self-aggrandizement or self-interest or expanding myself and my control and power. It's using the ego to serve something greater than yourself. So you have both, best of both worlds. You have the self, but you're not consumed by the self because the self is serving something that's beyond the self. The self becomes a channel, an agent of something that transcends self. This is true healthy love. So that's a tremendous, a tremendous insight. Because it means you can have a very strong ego, but it may have been misdirected and used in ways that were just pride, arrogance, haughtiness, putting others down. But you can take it, and if you direct that ego towards something that's greater than yourself, that greater cause is going to take your ego and, and, and use it toward the good ends. So the problem then becomes is when the ego is driven by its own interests. Instead of the ego being a tool driven by the captain of the ship and saying, okay, I'm going to use this power within us for forward thrust, for forward drive to be success, successful, 
It's now become an end in itself. It's looking for its own home. And that's the problem. So the sense of self, that comes from the deepest levels of the divine, having a sense of self. Like he says, one of the classic writings, is one of the last things Rabbi Shneir Zalm of the Adi wrote before he passed away. It's called the Geras HaKadosh Simechov. Geras HaKadosh means his holy letters. It's the fourth section of Tanya, this 20th um, so-called chapter, 20th epistle. And he says there that in order to create a sense of self that feels it was not made by anything, it does not, it's not an extension of another, a sense of self that feels like it has no cause and no creator, that comes from the essence of the divine that has no cause and no creator. In the Ilavasib has no cause and no um, root, I guess that's the right word. So what do we see from this? That we actually have a sense of strong sense of self, even though we know we have parents, and we know that they were, we were once in our mother's womb, but you don't feel that. You don't feel that, like you know, that you're, that you're chained. I mean, sometimes in unhealthy situations we may feel that. But in healthy, you know, a healthy child does not feel, as they grow into an adult, that they are an extension of their mother or father. They love them. They benefited from them. They were educated by them. They, they cherished them for that reason. But you feel like you were, have no beginning and no end. No one feels, I'm going to die. You know logically, because people die. We all know logically we were born. But you don't feel right now, oh, here's my beginning and here's my end. So where's that sense of self come from? That's like a really powerful sense of ego. It's a real ego. So as he says there, a tremendous innovative idea. That you, most people would think that's the root of all problems, that you think you're a self-made person when you're not. He says, no, the, the mere fact you feel that way comes from the divine essence, that God is that way. Basically, nothing has shaped him. Nothing has created him. And he's instilled within each of us that feeling. So that takes the ego to a completely different dimension. What does it say? It says that your ego, that sense of self in its purest form, not when it's misused, is coming from the, ego, the divine ego. Then we can use it either way. Either going the wrong way would be you feel you are self-made and you act on that and you behave arrogantly and you actually hurt others. So then you've taken this great gift and misused it. Or you come to recognize, yes, I feel that sense of self. I feel I can accomplish something. But I realize I'm accomplishing it because it was given to me as a gift. So now I'm going to serve a greater cause with that sense of self. That self-confidence then is directed toward harnessing the ego into positive activity. And you're driven to do so. And you can change worlds that way. If you ignore the ego or you broke it, so you may be able to forge ahead, but you're not going to have all that energy that comes from that power. So when, the, when it's misused, it turns into arrogance. When it's used, it's harnessed toward building things that are greater than yourself. So your ego is not compromised. It's just not following your own selfish interests. It's not narrow mind. It's not myopic. I find this to be a tremendous concept because as opposed to many philosophers and thinkers and moralists will say, we have to temper the ego. We have to get it quieter. It's the problem. It's the root of all problems. Your sense of self, self-preservation, self-interest, and so on. We have to find ways to, to quiet it down. Whereas according to this, no. That self comes from the deepest self-existence and the goal is to harness it and we feel an independent individual. Your independence of an individual is not something to be minimized. 
it's actually what's necessary because you're directing it not toward your goals, but toward higher purpose, toward higher goals, a greater good, a greater calling. You think about that, it takes the whole ego into a different context. So yes, there are times we have to just quiet your ego. You, know, you, get, you felt a fragile ego, you felt hurt, insulted. But we're talking about the bigger picture. The goal is not just to keep it at bay, but actually to harness it, to transform it into an ego that changes worlds, that has that confidence, that has that determination. Not because you want it and it's your personal gain. You want it, but it's because it's something, and at the end of the day, it's a cause that's not you. The greatest gift we have, real true happiness comes from. So, in the final conclusion, how big is your ego? Good question, how big is our ego? Our ego is a, uh, everyone has to answer that question. And the goal here is to answer it, number one is, I would say, how big is your negative ego? And how big is your positive ego? I would tend to, to believe that most people, the negative ego is more dominant. Because you have to be taught how to use a positive ego. You have to be taught how to feel empowered and still humble. How to feel strong and still modest. Because it seems like it doesn't work hand in hand. You'll see people are very tough and they're very ambitious. It comes with a downside that they tread on others. Sometimes people who are weaker... So the downside is they're not that ambitious and driven, and we feel it's mutually exclusive. It's not, based on what I described. You need, however, that secret ingredient called bittel, called humility, that it's not about you. It's not all about you. It's about something greater that you have the honor to serve, so then your ego becomes part and extension of that which you're serving. Which you'll see when anyone you talk to people who are honest about their talents, whether it's athletic talents or musical talents or artistic talents, They'll say, I'm channeling something. What does that mean? What do you mean channeling? You're creating it. No, I'm channeling something greater than myself. They feel it. They feel it when they're doing it. They feel it when they're in that zone. What is that saying? It's saying it's all, it's all there, but I'm channeling it from a place beyond me. It doesn't begin with me. And that's the, that makes all the difference, frankly. It's not the question where you say, you know what? You're too arrogant. Stop focusing on your qualities. We're talking about someone that has qualities. No, the goal is to understand the qualities have to be harnessed and that there's something about an ego that can be used in a positive way. Of course, discarding the negative parts of it and how it may hurt others. So when you think of it that way, ego is a very interesting topic on so many levels. It's not just about, okay, how do I minimize my ego? How do I bash my ego? How do I weaken it? And so on and so forth. But rather... It becomes a force that is meant for you to use, like, just like fire. Is fire good or bad? Fire can be unbelievably destructive, as we know, out of control. It could also be, without fire, we have no warmth, we have no light, we don't have the basic elements of life. So it all comes down to how you use it, not whether it's good or bad. And the same thing is with ego. And the same thing with all our other faculties. If it's misused or use like as an expression of yours, just your self-interest. So then it can be very selfish, it could hurt you, hurt others, and so on. But if it's used towards saying, how do I use my skills, my faculties, my talents, towards some cause greater than I am, it takes on a whole different shape. Then the ego is also part of the tool. It's also part of it. 
said before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, they were not self-conscious, like children. A child is not self-conscious of its own nakedness because there's nothing to be conscious about. So there's a certain beauty to that because you're not self-conscious. When consciousness entered into existence, there was a big change, a paradigm shift. Now I'm aware and I feel shame and I feel down. But the fact of the matter is, we all can go back to the pre-tree of knowledge stage. And we do often as, as young children, that what is that stage? Where was that? It's a level of innocence. A level of innocence that is not because you're um, naive, but you're, you're in a place that's beyond all these blemishes. You're beyond all the ugliness of life. Why am I mentioning it? Because when you talk about ego, there's the consciousness of your ego. You're aware of my ego. You're aware of yourself. You walk into a party. You walk into an event. How are people looking at me? You know, you may hide that thought, but you're feeling that. You look at yourself in the mirror. You look at how others look at you. That's basically your life is, your consciousness is about how people look at you. And before that tree of knowledge, what was our consciousness like? There was no consciousness. So ego was there. You do what you have to do but you're not self-conscious about it. It's not like the object and the subject are two. It's one. You are what you do. Like a fish in water. So it's a state of being as opposed to being conscious of that state of being. So it's another way to explain how the ego becomes a conscious state. When it's a conscious state, then it right away leads to self-consciousness. And the same thing is with ego. So you'll see some people who are very successful and very driven, but when you ask them, so what do you, you know, what's your drive? And they'll say, they'll say, what drive? What are you talking about? Because they're so in the zone and they're just really channeling and fulfilling what their mission is. They're not focusing on, oh, I'm doing this and I should be rewarded and at the end of the day I should receive accolades. There's nothing wrong with giving people accolades. There's nothing wrong with honoring people. But they're not driven by the honor. They're driven by the objective. They're driven by the mission, by the cause has to be done. And that's why they will, you'll find that they have less interest to take away someone else's honor. It's not about me. They're doing it. Now, sometimes people do things for their own self-interest and also for a higher cause. I'm not denying that. And that's also part of the process. As a matter of fact, it says in places, you begin that way with ulterior motives and then you come to a pure motive to do it for the cause itself. The point, the most important point, however, is that even if you're doing it with self-interest in mind, but it's also a cause. It's not just self-interest. So you take all this together, you end up with a very interesting equation, very interesting analysis of the nature of the ego, its strengths, its liabilities, and recognize when it's being destructive, when it's being constructive. And it's not difficult to see. You see how you interact with others, you see your sense of um, pride when someone else succeeds instead of jealousy. You see the, the elements of, of, of uh, motivation versus demoralization and all the other that I mentioned before. So, by no means can I say this, does just, this, this did justice to the topic, but like everything, it's a good beginning. It's a good beginning, giving an overview, understanding it, and most importantly, applying it to our lives. I welcome all your comments. The Meaningful Life Center, we're here for you. We're here to serve your needs. And most importantly, the most important need of all, meaning in life, purpose in life. And purpose and meaning in life is very much connected to getting yourself out of the way and serving, being a channel, like I'm describing. That's the greatest blessing.
<clears throat> so some people think, one second, I'd rather be driven by self-interest. Being driven by a higher cause doesn't mean your self-interest is not served. It's just not beginning and ending with that. And it's far more gratifying and far more eternal and far more everlasting. So please be in touch with us at MeaningfulLife.com. If this is the first time you're here with us, visit our site. You'll find plenty of resources. You can write us and comment. We have a bunch of subscription lists, including a weekly newsletter and uh, updates. We have the Soul Workout and the Soul Vitamins that are different short videos and texts that are tools, tools for living. But above all, everything comes together meaningful life to help you live a life of purpose and direction and knowing you're going toward that direction. And yes, actualizing everything you have toward that direction, but not driven by you, you, driven by you as a channel for a greater cause. So until next Wednesday, we should have a very blessed week. We're here every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m., unless announced otherwise. The classes lately have been online, not on location, but there are going to be some new announcements about we will soon be having a new location. So stay tuned. And uh, I always, as always, we're here for you in every possible way, and we hope we can feel the same. So if, you'd like, if you're benefiting from this program or other programs, please consider a generous sponsorship at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. It's a great way to honor a loved one or, a, or someone that has passed. Honor them or in their memory. And, uh, and it's easy to do and a great honor for us and for you in every possible way that we can all join together as partners in building a meaningful life for as many people as possible. Share with others. It's like a ripple effect. And hopefully we can all build a better little world and a larger world together. Thank you so much, everyone. Everyone have, be well.